Hello, my friend, and welcome to Something for Everybody, the podcast to help those who listen feel more loved and connected through story sharing. My name is Aaron Mashbitz, and Michael Girdley joins the podcast this week, and Michael is the CEO of a 12 business holding company. And in this conversation, we dive into a Twitter thread he wrote about 10 things he learned from owning a failing business. It's a really insightful conversation and I'm super glad I got to chat with Michael. In other news, this podcast is brought to you by Amare. Amare is the mental wellness company and I use their products every single day. So go ahead and click the link in the show notes, scroll through all of their products and see which ones might work best for you and your wellness needs. Then once you get to check out, use code everybody for $10 off your entire order. Now, on to episode 225 of Something for Everybody with Michael Girdley. Hello, my friends, and welcome to Something for Everybody. My name is Aaron Mashvitz. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Aaron. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Before we break down um, one of your Twitter threads that really stood out to me, I have a very important question to ask you, and that is, how are you doing? Like, actually, really, how are you doing? Uh, good. You know, I think uh, 2023 was a pretty tough year. Um, I've had a few tough years before, and this was probably the toughest. Um, but, you know, all in all, one of the things I did a few weeks ago was sit down and try to write like a reflection on 2023. And there were two things that were really tough in the year. And uh, then I said, okay, I need to balance this piece out. I need to write some positive stuff. And like 15 things that went right and were great, like all came out. So kind of a reminder for myself, like, yeah, things seem tough, but a lot of times it just that act of slowing down and thinking about what truly is going great in your life is worth doing because it gives you a lot of gratitude and appreciation and ultimately perspective on, you know, we have it pretty good and I definitely have it pretty good and I need to keep my chin up and remember that all the time. Yeah. So what is going great? I would, I want to know more about that. Oh, I mean, so many things. I mean, my family's terrific relationships mm -hmm. there. I have an amazing cast of friends. Like I just went on a ski trip with a bunch of guy friends of mine and I'm going on another one in February, like just amazing stuff you know, friendship wise, family wise, amazing wife, just terrific there. We we're getting ready to celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary. It's, it's oh. really dragging out. <laughs> so we're going, we're going to go do, go away for that. Uh, business wise, just so many great things happened in 2023. You know, I started a media company and that's doing really well. Um, we started a CEO peer network called scale path. That's doing really well. They're up over a hundred members. Um, you know, a software company I started in 2017 raised $88 million this year. Like just just like really good stuff. Like, <laughs> so, anyway, and I, my list is long. That's, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Where'd you go skiing? Cause me and my fiance, we just got back from, uh, from Aspen. I did not ski. She loves it. Okay. She's good at it. I haven't convinced myself that I want to do it yet, but where were you at? Uh, we went to Copper Mountain. It's uh, nestled between Frisco and, and Vail, uh, west of Denver. So you fly up to Denver. Then you drive for two hours west. And then there's a magic mountain with little chairs to take you to the top. And then you slide down. Nice. Yeah, we were close to each other. I guess we're close to each other now, too, in Texas. But awesome. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah. So like I said at the top, you wrote this like amazing thread. And I think it's perfect because you just talked about some of your successes. Now we can dive deep into some of the lessons you've learned about owning failing businesses. Um, there's 10 points here, and we'll just start with number one, which was, it's never one thing that kills a business 
Ultimately, it dies because it runs out of money, but that's almost always caused by a confluence of factors. So what was that first one about? Yeah, I, you know, I think when you read articles about companies that go out of business or fail, I mean, like, what you see is the reporters always kind of look for the one factor. Where's the smoking gun that like murdered this thing? And what I've learned when you look at distressed businesses, it's never like, okay, this one thing killed it. You know, it wasn't Japanese competition, for example, right? That killed the auto industry or whatever. Like, um, it turns out it's like the the souring of the economy, the increase in interest rates, a change in the labor pool, and all those things together tend to be the things that like go and kill a business. Um, and so that makes it actually really hard as a business owner that you're trying to first and foremost, like you want to make money, but before you even do that, you want to make sure your business doesn't go out of business. Like you have to be like, not only watching for like, is there one big thing that's going to kill my business? Cause it's not, it's like, okay, what's happening in the entire universe of this business. And I need to make sure I keep my tabs over, you know, on all of those things. Yeah. It makes me think about a sports team. Um, cause that's just what I relate everything to. Cause that's my, that's where my brain goes. It's like always the head coach of the team always gets fired. And right. now sometimes, yeah, it might be his fault. He might be doing some play calling wrong or he didn't pick the right personnel. But usually, like you're saying, right, there's more stuff involved. Maybe it's a culture issue. Maybe it's there wasn't enough team chemistry or they didn't focus on one specific area that they needed to upgrade in terms of their team personnel. Like, so it's always a lot of things. But one person ultimately, when money is involved, has to take the blame, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Or the GM makes some bad picks or, you know, or you just get unlucky. I think that's the other thing people really don't give enough credit to in business and in life is just how much luck affects things. Right. And, um, you know, we were, you know, I was with my buddies at the ski trip that we were just talking about. And like, we were talking about the 737 max stuff happening. Right. And like, like a lot of things that are screwed up about the 737 now is because of choices that were made by the designers 50, 60 years ago. For example, it's a really low slung airplane and, the, and that has caused them to move the engines around in weird ways and all this kind of stuff that's made the, the, the plane just an oddball. Um, but the reason it's so low slung is when Boeing was first designing the airplane, they wanted to have it so a person at a like a rural or a small airfield could load it from the ground without any special equipment. That's why they made the airplane so low. They didn't have to make it so so low to the ground. And so like just that little decision that some designer made like 60 years ago to meet this one small edge customer requirement, which wasn't a big deal then because the engines were smaller, um, turns into something that's cascaded into all this bad luck now that shows up in, you know, crashes in Africa and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, I just find that fascinating. And the same thing happens to business. You know, you, you have a key employee get cancer or whatever, like that's just bad luck. Like sometime that's going to happen to you. And, um, you know, that also just is always part of my mind whenever I'm successful in something, I'm like, Oh yeah, I got a little bit lucky in all this, no matter what. So I'm going to be like, I'm not going to get too high on my own supply, uh, when, when there's W's. Yeah. The luck factor is, I think about it all the time. I'm like, you know, cause I feel like my life is like, I feel like I'm very, very blessed in, in a lot of different ways. And I'm like, well, why, why me? And then that right. why me turned into like, why now I have a responsibility to like, like morally to like try and do the best I can to try and make a positive impact on one person because I feel like I'm so lucky with this life and my parents and this brain and body and all of these sorts of things. Um, so it's so interesting when people say that when they reach like sort of the top of the mountain, they're like, yeah, I did it all by myself. No one helped me along the way. Like 
like that that can't actually be true like you may have felt like you were on an island because you were putting in so much work and some of that work is really lonely but man like a bunch of stuff had to go like just right for you to really reach that pinnacle and i think being able to just admit that that some of it was luck is is important just like you're saying uh look i got super lucky i had I, my parents were, you know, were amazing parents. I was born in the United States. I was born in Texas. You know, we talked about like where you're born matters a lot. Like, were we born in the coal country of West Virginia or were you, what was I born in San Antonio, right? Like, or Dallas. Like, those are all huge life factors. Um, and that's not even getting the stuff that happens later in life, like the people you meet and who your parents know or who, you know, who just happens to seat next to you at freshman year composition, right? In, uh, in college, all those things are hugely impactful. And I think anybody, I agree with you hundred percent, anybody that doesn't understand the impact of luck on their outcome really probably what deserves, <laughs> deserves <laughs> to think that way, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, all right. Number two, the end can sneak up on you. You're like the frog that doesn't notice the water heating up. You build a business yep. on tailwinds, but they shift into headwinds over months or years. Then the last few weeks are, holy crap, and then it dies. Yeah. Have you heard the, uh, there's an interesting line about, um, that was spoken at, I forget who, it may have been Twain or somebody else, but it's basically like, like he said, like this, at a funeral, he said like, this gentleman died the way most men die, slowly and then all at once. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's kind of the same thing, right? Like if you look at a business, you know, okay, well, you know, a key customer leaves and then a second key customer leaves and then an employee leaves. And then, you know, it kind of sneaks up on you and the signs are kind of like a, a healthy person, right? First thing your, your eyes go and then your hearing go and then you stop moving and then you stop eating well. And then suddenly like you get on a downward spiral and it all happens very quickly. But if you're not paying attention to each of those little signs, like they don't all they don't all make sense, right? And then you just say, oh, this is just a bad thing that happened in the business. But in retrospect, you look back and you're like, oh, like all that snuck up on me. I didn't realize how bad things were, you know, at, at the moment of owning the business for sure. And as a business owner with like, some people have uh, basically the CEOs and do everything. Um, how do you notice those little things along the way? How do you pay attention to those small details when maybe you're focused only on the, the macro instead of the micro? Yeah, I mean, that's part of my job as a as a as a board member. I mean, I think fundamentally board members have a fiduciary duty. This is just that's how the rule works to make sure the thing is there and you know, as I think as I continue to learn and grow as a board member, I'm getting better at this. You know, and some of it is just like in retrospect looking at it and saying like, "Oh, like I should have seen the signs that we were going to have a cash crunch four quarters from now or I could have seen that this one key customer was like a huge risk for us." And I think that's to me I can't think of a better way to start to learn those things than through experience. But also I think having mentors who've been through some of these things before and, and, you know, talking through with them and saying, okay, well, here's what's going on with my business or here's what's going on with this company I'm on the board of, you know, having those people around who've seen it before is good. So um, I don't know if I answered your question or not, but like, there's no real way I figured out how to do it other than try hard and experience. Yeah. I mean, I agree completely. There was no way for me, in baseball to know how I was going to handle striking out four times in a game until I struck out four times in a game, you know? And so as you progress in sort of making money or your business or in sport or in business or whatever the case may be, you have to, you have to, you have to experience those failures. But another way to learn from them a little bit quicker is like you're saying to learn from someone else who did the exact same thing, then you can mesh it into your story 
Um, but I guess it, it never, never really, at least for me, never really clicks as deeply until I like am in the trenches, like, well, fuck, I just embarrassed myself four straight at bats. Like, yeah. okay, well, there's this, this is what this feels like. There's this whole category of knowledge of things that, you know, I'm almost 50 that I've learned that I understand intellectually, but I don't truly internalize them until I experience it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people like some of the lessons from owning failing businesses. Yeah. Like I could read that list. And until I truly experienced what some of the other stuff we're going to talk about is um, the roller coaster and stuff like that, you know, it's, um, you don't really know it until you do it. And that's, that's one of just the unfortunate realities of life. Um, 28 year old Michael, you know, 20 years ago would not have agreed with you because he thought he knew everything. But 48 year old <laughs> Michael is like, yeah, <laughs> so you got you to see some stuff to really understand. Yeah, I was listening to this podcast and there was like, a, there was an interesting point made that, you know, so much about pers is personal development. Are you really just actually getting better? Or as you mature, are you just figuring it out because you've been on earth longer? And I don't, I, I'm not sure if I'm making that distinction well enough, but like, do you, do you get what I'm saying? Like, as you, like, are you actually getting better or are you just getting older? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think people, I think it differs by person, right? You see those people who are not you know, approaching the world with a beginner's mind. They're not admitting mistakes. They're not growing. They're not trying to learn. Um, they're not on a journey of, of bettering themselves, which I think is what this is all about. You know, this whole life thing. But you see people like that, and and yeah, they're just getting older. <laughs> they they stopped growing intellectually and capability at twenty five or thirty five or even fifteen, and uh, there's a lot of those people. But I think you know there's other people that you do get better because you have the right mindset in terms of how to approach it. You know, you, you understand you don't know everything. You know that the default of the way the world works is mostly gray and not black and white. Um, and and you just understand that those are kind of the fundamental ways of the world works and have the humility to approach it the right way. Um, I think there is a group of people that get better. I, I hope, I feel like I'm in that bucket because I see myself making better decisions than I did five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And uh, yeah, and I could be wrong, but I'll, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to go with my take on it. I like, I like feeling like I'm getting better. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, uh, when I work with athletes, I try to get them to drill down on the number one thing they can focus on, which is being the best at getting better. Yeah. That's totally fully in your control outside of the coach, whether you play your scholarship, how much money, like some of that will come and you want to influence those factors because they're important. But every day I can be the best at getting better. And over time, it's probably going to be pretty good for you. Like if you actually are putting in those correct reps and having the right people around you and things of that nature. So it's very cool to, to have that sort of control and influence and know what, what could come up from it. hundred uh, percent. Number three. For me. Oh, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, number three, the skyscraper effect. What's the skyscraper effect? Yeah. So the skyscraper effect is really interesting. Um, what they've, what economists and historians have noticed is right at the time of a society or a country, uh, reaches its, uh, reaches its zenith. And then the decline begins is almost always when they build like a giant building. Right. Um, so <laughs> So if you go look at like what happened when the Empire State Building was built, well, they finished it right when the Great Depression started. Uh, the Sears Tower uh, in Chicago was built right at peak Sears, right? And it's, it's, it's so peak Sears that it's not even called the Sears Tower anymore. Uh, the, uh, I don't know if you've been to Detroit, but there's a huge monument, a huge building that uh, GM built um, right on the river 
uh, in Detroit, this enormous like Emerald Tower kind of complex. And what you see in that, or there's uh, in Kuala Lumpur, they built the Petronas Towers, right? All of that happens, people build those types of buildings right at the peak before the before the fall, right? And it's the peak of hubris before the fall. And just the pattern I've noticed when businesses um, go distressed or go under, it always seems to happen right as you make like some huge investment. You go build a brand new factory, you make an acquisition that's crazy, right? You look at kind of the AOL, like I don't know if you remember from the late 90s, there was um, the AOL acquisition. I'm totally blanking on who bought them, but it was like uh, Time Warner, I think it was like like the whole thing where they like bought it and it's like that was peak hubris and then everything goes down after that. So the skyscraper effect is like this idea that your peak for your business and it may all start to go wrong right at that moment. You make some huge investment uh, in the business and yeah, that's a skyscraper effect. Hmm. But doesn't it doesn't it make sense for that business to make that investment since they're doing so well, or is there something that they're inherently missing? that's causing that like decline at the end. So what is happening there is uh, the foundation that you're building on or the trends that you're building on are going to change on you, right? Mm -hmm. And so at the moment, the moment that you build that building, right? Let's say the moment you build the Empire State Building, office demand is high, everything, the economy is, is cruising, the stock market's at all time high, everybody's borrowing, the, the scheme keeps going. But what you don't see is the moment you're making that is underneath all of that, the foundation has become rickety. The foundation has become weak. And so the danger, you know, and for me, the, the takeaway is if I'm going to make a huge investment or a huge capital investment or do something that's an all in type moment, the Patronus Towers or the, the Sears Towers or whatever, like, make sure that you truly understand that the foundation you're building on hasn't shifted out from under you. So what people didn't see with the Empire State Building was that like the entirety of the stock market was built on borrowed money and it was all just a big like house of cards that was going to come down. And you know, when they started to go build that building, what they should have done before of course the Empire State Building, if my memory serves right, went bankrupt um during during the Great Depression, like what they should have looked at is okay, what are the fundamentals we're building on and our assumptions around that really true. And mm. yeah, things may look really good on the surface level. Your KPIs are great, but when you double click on them, it's like, oh, underneath this, like two or three quarters or two or three years from now, like things are going to be really bad. And I always do that now before I make big CapEx <laughs> into a business like that. Yeah. So it, do you think people are maybe are blindsided by the success that they're not seeing the full picture um, and they haven't dug deep enough into the foundation to know that it's a long lasting thing, but they're just like, oh, we're doing, we're crushing it right now. Let's go yeah. all in. And then, you know, sort of having those blinders on. Yeah, that's human nature. And that's why crowds do what they do. That's why we have cyclicality in markets. Like that is the nature of, that's the nature of humans, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, you look at what happens in the financial markets. It's not because financial markets are wired to be cyclical. Or it's not because they're wired to have euphorias or manias or any of that kind of stuff. It's because there's people behind them that are fundamentally flawed and irrational creatures. And we do dumb stuff. Like we think because something has always happened and everybody's getting rich, well, we're going to get rich too. So we, we go with the wisdom of the crowds and all that. Um, and so also people make a lot of money because humans are irrational, right? If you're willing to be contrarian to what's going on from everybody else, you know, you sell when there's a mania, you buy when people are, you know, irrational about selling stuff, like that's opportunity there as well. But yeah, it's just, that's human nature is the short answer to your question. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it very interesting and hard to predict. So those who have been really consistent 
you know, like yourself, it's, it's even more impressive, I think. Uh, I just try to ignore everything. <laughs> I just I worry about fundamentals and bottoms up. And it's like, people are like, what's going to happen to interest rates? I'm like, I don't know. What's going to happen to the global markets? I don't know. Well, what do you, what do you know? Well, I know that customer <laughs> right there is going to keep wanting this thing. Okay, cool. Yeah. Let's get, let's, let's bet on that. and we'll keep moving. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Number four, uh, you take it personally, usually with shame. You look back and see all the things you did wrong. We all deserve to give ourselves grace and forgiveness for our mistakes, but you'll feel like a moron and that you let people down who believed in you. Oh, 100%. Mm, yeah, like you talk to any, a, yeah, you talk to anybody who has um, owned a business and failed. Um, you can see it in Twitter too. Like people when they, and it, it rarely shows up on Twitter because the algorithm doesn't like it, but people who talk about, you know, running a, running a business that went out of business or they failed about that business. It's never about the money that truly pains them, right? It's more about like, I let my family down. I let the employees down. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's one of the toughest parts, I think, for people that go through this journey um, of, you know, CEOing or owning a failing business is just like, you feel like you feel you feel like the worst. <laughs> it's you can't be objective about it, unfortunately. No, it's so true. You just feel like, I mean, for lack of a better term, you feel like a real piece of shit. Yeah. Um, at least for me, when I'm coaching a team and when we lose a game or a tournament or so, just something happens, you know, big wise, it's like, well, I just let everyone down and. You know, then you think about all the things like, do I even deserve to be here? Do I deserve to be a coach? Like, should I even be leading young men? Like, what's my problem? You know, all of those thoughts come racing in because the thing is so fresh, but it still holds true. But there, there's some things you can do to pick yourself up, to learn from it, you know, all of those important stuff. But initially that, that feeling is like, there's no, there's no avoiding feeling just like crap about it. And, you know, and then you think about other people's families and how they're going to take care, like all of that right. stuff that I'm sure you've experienced extremely firsthand um but so yeah that's that's a good one yeah and nobody knows the decisions that you should have done differently better than you do mm -hmm. right? if you're the ceo who you know ran ge into the ground or whatever like you can look back and be like uh, <laughs> like I, I totally should have done some stuff differently um and that's okay you know i think what some of the stuff we've talked about earlier in the podcast about luck and about you know confluence of factors um Sometimes it's just, you know, you have to give yourself a little grace where it's just like, oh, like things were inevitable or I did my best at the time. And all of those are reasonable ways to mitigate feeling terrible about it. And it's also okay to feel terrible about it. You know, people, people will initially tell you like, hey, don't, don't feel bad about that. Well, actually, it's totally natural to feel bad about it. And it's mm -hmm. totally natural to feel like, you know, a personal sense of shame about it. But then the key thing is like, how do you deal with that afterwards? Like, how do you think about your feeling of shame and how do you react to that and how do you go on with your life afterwards and go through the five stages of grief and all that kind of stuff and yeah i think it's i think it's a complex and very interesting thing and the key thing that i is is all about how you react to it and and coaches um in you know in your shoes i think have such a cool opportunity to model healthy response to failure for the for the players um, and the same thing goes for business owners. And it's a, it's a fun and interesting challenge to, you know, to live life well in that way. Yeah. Yeah. You should absolutely feel it. Like, cause that, I mean, if you don't one, you're probably like, if you don't feel any emotion, you're either numbing it too much or you're a psychopath. 
and both of those things are not, are not very good, you know, but neither like is healthy, neither is healthy, but you cared about the thing. And it's like, it's after you get heartbroken or you break up with your partner, like it's okay to be sad, like, and disappointed. Now, if it's like six months down the line and we're still wallowing in it and we haven't addressed it or looked at it or, you know, got out of the house or moved our body or started to eat better, whatever the case may be to make us feel better, then that's, a, that's an issue. But like, 20 minutes after the thing is happening and someone's like, yeah, forget about it. I'm like, <laughs> are you sure? Like, I, I, this is something that I really, 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 really cared about. And so uh, I think that's important too, which leads uh, directly to number five, which is what you, you already sort of mentioned is how you react is what matters, right? Failure is nothing to be ashamed of. Fair, fair, fail poorly, um, you should be embarrassed. But do you stick to your values? Do you treat others around you well? Are you truthful with them? Leave it all on the field. You can choose to go out with your head high. Man, that's beautiful. That's like money right there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you could use that for sports teams, maybe. Hundred um, percent. Yeah, I think that's that's and there's a that's a microcosm of life, in my opinion. Like, you know, the, the beauty of life is things will go well, and the only way you really appreciate things going well is because things go poorly in parallel. And you know, it all it. it life is all about how do you react to those moments of good and bad you know everything from being a good winner on the sports field to being a you know a good loser like those are all opportunities to to live a life well and um yeah i think where i see potentially people go the wrong way is put themselves of, ahead of the good of of the group or the organization or you know the employees or customers um you know go against their core values i think ultimately like reflecting and doing responding and doing it the right way is the easiest way to leave proud of your behavior and and that's all anybody can ask for and there's a guy i don't know if you've seen him he's on um he's on twitter this guy hunter he uh he's been going through personal bankruptcy have you read any of his stuff it's really interesting mm -hmm. um yeah i'm totally blanking on his last name but uh he basically has been live tweeting his personal bankruptcy he like left wow. amazon went and bought a bunch of like businesses uh too much too soon probably did a bunch of personal guarantees and then all the businesses went to crap <laughs> within the span of a year and um like ended up like running out of money personal bankruptcy all this kind of stuff and um to watch how he's reacted to the whole thing has been really inspiring and i think he's modeling kind of the behavior that we should all have when things go poorly owning a bad business or losing a sports you know competition like how you react is what matters and and i really believe that mm. Yes, it, it's everything. Oh, it's so important. Yeah, I'm, I'm coaching a, a 9U team this year, which is the youngest age that I've ever coached. And I'm excited for a couple of reasons. One, I just love baseball and being out there with, with kids. But I have to get really good now, even better than I thought I was at, at controlling my emotions, at being able to line my words up with my actions. Because, you know, 9U, they're going to be, they're probably going to run the wrong way. They're going to throw the ball here and here. It's going to be great, right? But I have to be able to, <laughs> you know, model that behavior. Like, how do I want them to respond to something that happens? Because nine-year-old kids aren't really listening to what I say. They're looking at how I act about everything. And so um, I'm excited for that challenge and to be able to uh, help them, you know, develop that uh, that mindset moving forward. So the response is, is everything. And so I, I, that's a beautiful take on that. Amen. Here we go. Number six. Business shutdown is a roller coaster. Trying to keep a company alive, there will be moments where it looks like there's hope. Then 12 hours later, the door closes and things get worse. 
It will happen over and over and over again, maybe for months or years. It's super exhausting. Yeah. What's yeah, I have about? a friend uh, who has been trying to keep a company alive for 14 months now. And he finally Oof. just succeeded, by the way. Like, oh, yeah. Came through the other side. But like every week, it was like, hey, like, okay, well, we're going to make be able to make payroll for the next month. This customer has come through and they're going to pay us. Well, oh, sorry. The bu customer budget just got canceled and happens the very next week. Oh, hey, you know, the week after that, hey, somebody is going to buy our business. They were coming through. Oh, they just kidding. They gave up. Um, you know, in the next week, it's like just this roller coaster of moments where you're like, I think we can make it. I think we're going to get through it. And, um, you know, I've, I've just watched it over and over again. And the interesting thing is, and I think I talk about it, the next thing is the byproduct of what happens when you go through months of hope and then let down, hope and then let down, hope and then let down, is that eventually everybody goes through that process, that roller coaster, and like, like it's just debilitating. Like you're going through that process of what's happening, and I, I guess I don't want to spoil the <laughs> spoil the magic of the next tweet that we're going to go through, but um, it, what it does to the people is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, basically, we'll just pop right into the next one, which is business failure will impact your health and life. When things are imploding, it will affect the rest of your life. Having a support system is what matters. Invest in family, friends, and community when times are good. They'll be there when things go poorly. You need them. Like stamp that fucking tweet. Put it on your put it on your mirror. Look at that every day. Like invest in family, friends, and community. Wow. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, it's entirely right. And a lot of that happens and needs to happen before you know, the business goes poorly, right? Like you have to be investing in that stuff for years to where you can go draw on good health. You can go draw on good relationships. You can go draw on good family and be able to go to that well and ask of it when you're going through a tough time. And, you know, the times I've gone through this, my family, you know, I'm open with them. Hey, here's what's going on. This is crappy, whatever. And um, like they will, they will rally around you and be super supportive, right? And you know, I've gone through journeys where it's company's about to run out of money and you're trying to keep it keep it afloat and keep it going. And there's nothing better than being able to be transparent with that, you know, with your spouse or your family or whatever. Um, and they'll they'll help you with the little things. And that, you know, that can help try to keep you in balance. It's impossible for it not to affect you, is my experience. Um, but it can help mitigate some of the damage that you're gonna see health wise and you know, emotionally and all that kind of stuff by having those people you can call on when it's time. Yeah, if we can get to a point where we're proactive instead of reactive, I think that's really important. I work a lot in, in mental health and trying to get people to realize that there can be a set of skills and tools that you utilize every single day, regardless if you feel bad or not. You just do them. Like these are your protocols of eating well, moving well, sleeping well, and thinking well. And I do them every single day to be proactive with my mental health. It doesn't mean that the crisis is not going to come. It definitely will. You're going to get punched in the face. You're going to get knocked down. You're going to feel like shit. But now you have this these core foundational pieces, which we spoke about with the, with the businesses, that you can stand on, that you know work for you, and you can do them immediately. Then if those don't work in those moments where things are really bad, then you have a place where you can ask for a little extra help because you know that you can because you've built in those proactive steps. And uh, it's it's extremely important when it comes to our emotional well-being, and so I imagine uh, it's just as important when you're trying to build something that's that's really freaking cool, like a business or anything else like that. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Well said. 
Yeah, I mean, oh, man. I there's there's an analogy. I think it's from um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, where he talks about building uh, an emotional bank account with a person, yeah. and that's that's basically what you want to do with yourself. Like, I I'm I'm investing, 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 and then at some point I have to take some withdrawals. And it's in work in a relationship aspect because I'm investing in you over and over again with my fiance, let's say. And then now in this three-week sprint, I'm not going to be home very often. So I'm, I'm having a lot of withdrawals, but I've invested so much that the bank account is still big enough for our relationship to flourish after that moment is over. And I think that's, that's really important um, because if you have this like drive that you want to work really hard, that's super important and I, you should nurture that drive. But if you're left alone at the top of the mountain, like who, who the fuck are you going to tell? Like wh yeah. who are you sharing it with? Like that's nothing. You know, people tell that story all the time. But if I'm up there with my, my buddy from high school and my best friend and my wife and my dog, and I'm like, yes, we did it. Like with your support, I would have never made it this far. Like that's cool to think about um, yeah, with all the luck that helped get you there as well. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah. So amazing. All right. Next one. The Stockdale Paradox. What's the Stockdale Paradox? Yeah, Stockdale Paradox is really interesting. Um, I'll try to do it justice. Basically, he was a guy that was a vice presidential candidate way back in the day. Um, and he's a famous admiral. And basically, he was one of the folks during Vietnam that was a pilot that was shot down and captured by the North Vietnamese. And he, those guys were in captivity for years. I think the longest was close to a decade, if not longer. Um, and he noticed something with his fellow prisoners, right? These were captured Americans that were held in the North. Um, and he noticed that the guys who were the ones that were like, I just got to make it to Christmas. We'll be out by Christmas. I just got to make it to Christmas. Oh, and then Christmas came and they didn't get out by Christmas. And then they said, okay, I just got to make it to April. And then April came. Uh, the, then it, and it, they didn't make it to Easter, right. In April. And those were the guys that broke what they, mm -hmm. what he saw. The paradox was the folks who expected that they would get out and were optimistic about getting out. They were the ones who didn't make it. And what he saw was there was this actual paradox where the folks that made it were the ones that said, I'm going to be optimistic that I'm going to get out someday, but I don't know when, and it could be never <laughs> like they, there was this paradox that by having the, that other approach, which was this could go on for forever and I don't know when it's going to stop, but I know it'll stop someday, um, were the ones that actually survived and did better and thrived through the whole thing mentally, right? They didn't break because they had this idea that they just had to keep going and they were going to go forever or as long as it took. And so Stockdale came up with this idea and it's this paradox that, oh, it's actually the people that were able to have that kind of contrary view that, oh, I don't have a goal to get out. I, don't, I just don't know when. They were the ones that were going to make it. And this, I think the same thing applies for, for a distressed business or owning a failing business is one where you're just like, okay, I don't know how long it's going to take for us to turn this thing around. I don't know if we're, you know, I don't, I don't know when it's going to stop, but I know it's going to stop someday. And I'm going to get to a point where we, we're optimistic and we're going to win uh, or we're going to lose and it's going to end someday, but I don't know how long it's going to take. And I think that's the more healthier approach to take when you're inside of a struggling or a distressed business is, oh, it's not, we got to just get this one sale and then the business will be fixed again. Are we going to fix this one thing? It's like, okay, we're in this for the long haul and uh, we're going to remain optimistic about it. Um, and 
use this kind of stocktail paradox idea as the way to make it more survivable for you as a person really going through a stressful thing right because that's the other thing owning a owning a distressed or a failing business is it is a stressful difficult situation and uh, you give yourself that mental approach and it's much more survivable yeah that's really good uh, i've always thought that optimism is the foundation for mental toughness and yeah. uh you know there's two different kinds of optimism there's one that a lot of people i think adopt which is like this naive optimism which is like i'm everything's going to get better but i'm not going to do anything different than i'm doing now and things are just going to work out that's like right. sort of dangerous sort of what you're talking about that first one like i'm getting out tomorrow the business is going to be changed tomorrow uh but instead there's this other optimism which is rooted in reality like okay i'm in this shitty situation i'm captive i'm hostage and i'm gonna i'm gonna believe like fundamentally i'm gonna believe that things are gonna work out for the best but i just don't know how or when but i'm gonna i'm gonna do my best to make it happen and if it does great that makes you much more mentally tough than just like thinking like some fairy is gonna like spray some dust over you and everything's gonna be you know everything's gonna be perfect the next day and so um yeah, again, that's an, it's like it's so much. It's so cool how there's so many parallels between business and sports. And what you, what I'm trying to teach my athletes is the same thing that we can teach employees to be resilient over the long haul, especially when they're trying to um, create something great or something sustainable or something excellent. So that's really cool. Hundred percent. All right, number nine. Everyone eventually exhausts themselves after months of a grind to save a dying company. People get tired. Take care of yourself and your team. Take nights off. Tell people to take the weekend. When people sell after five to 10 years, sometimes it's just because they're tired. Yeah. That was something I never, the last sentence was something I never really internalized until I saw I saw it and experienced it, right? And, you know, I think you, you talk to some people who are business buyers and they're like, oh, well, like, why would you sell this company? It's making you so much money. And, you know, like this doesn't make any sense. And, and until you realize objectively, like from a monetary perspective, it makes no sense to sell a thriving business. But at a certain point after 10 years, you'll talk to some people and they're just like, yeah, I've just had enough. Like, you know, I'm ready to move on to the next thing. And this emotion, you know, because the emotional tax of owning this business, I'm just exhausted. And the, the, the challenge with, the challenge with a good business is it, it costs you some emotionally because every day, you know, just like being a coach, there's little struggles that you have to kind of just like keep your mouth shut and just like take the hit because you want to you want to win in the long term. Uh, and those cost you. Now, that's one thing when it's a winning business, when it's a losing ass business <laughs> that's struggling, like your your every day is like a huge emotional tax. Mm -hmm. And I've watched teams go over month after month. And just like eventually the tank empties and I realize that's a real thing and I have much more grace and appreciation for it now than I did years ago before I saw it in practice. What do you do um, daily to take care of yourself, Michael? Me personally? Yeah. Uh, sleep well, eat well, uh, do things outside of work for sure that are inspiring and fun. Um, Personally, I find uh, immense amount of emotional therapy and intense exercise. Mm. So if I feel like I'm going to barf, like that's a good sign. Uh, that'll put a lot of things in perspective. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer in mastering the fundamentals of health and wellness uh, to prepare your kind of platform um, 
and the platform being like your mind, like your emotional state and your ability to make decisions well and all that kind of stuff. And so like, I'm very much just like, get the fundamentals right. Sleep well, eat well, work on things that are inspiring, um, take long walks with your wife, that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, all of that, all that by itself is hard enough to get right before you start adding like green juices and smoothies <laughs> and supplements and shit like that. So, yeah. Yeah. You want to be brilliant at the basics for sure. Have you always, um, have you always prioritized sleep or has that been, a, is that a new thing for you? New thing. I went through my thirties, totally sleep deprived. I was in the more is better camp and now it's do less, but better camp is where I think I am. So really, really prioritizing sleep is something I did like three years ago. And I feel like a different plan. I feel like I'm a different person. Right. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if you've studied kind of some of the generational differences. It may be showing up in a number of the kids you coach and young people you coach. Um, but studies recently have shown that teenagers and people in their early twenties are a chronically sleep deprived group. Hmm. Um, like the, the amount of hours on average that a teenager is getting now is one to two hours less than when I was a teenager. And a lot of it's because they're up late on their phones. Yep. And, um, so you're like, okay, well, they're getting a little bit less sleep. Well, there's, there is a, there is a negative externality of getting less sleep, which is you are more likely to feel depressed and experienced, experienced depression. So we're like, like, why are these young people so negative today? Well, some of it's because they're just freaking tired. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they need to sleep more. And, um, you know, it's, it's really underrated, but also kind of sad. Um, you know, as I kind of watch people who are so unhappy, I'm like, are you sleeping enough? And a lot of times the answer is no, I'm not. So. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the basic things you need to get right is like what you're saying. It's like sleeping well, eating well, moving well, and thinking well. And if those things are dialed in and you're still not feeling great, you're still feeling depressed or whatever the case may be is, yeah, okay, now it's time for a little extra help. Whatever the case may be, talk therapy, medication, whatever might work for you. Um, but if those foundational layers are, are dialed in, then, I mean, you're going to feel better. Like, I have more clarity of mind. I have more energy. I have more capacity to make decisions once I sleep well. Um, and it's interesting the what's changed because when I was growing up, sleep wasn't really talked about because it was always about grinding. We weren't on our phones. I didn't have a phone. It was like grind, 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 grind. Sleep's not important. We all seen Remember the Titans. Like you just got to get after it all the time. And that, that, that works, right? You do have to work hard. But now in sports world, the shift is rest and recovery are part of the work. But now young people aren't feeling that because they just want to scroll on their phone and they feel like they're missing out and they're comparing and all this stuff that happens on social. And so there's no like hustle culture so much anymore. Well, in some aspects of the internet there is, but I think we need to then, I mean, there's a huge shift in talking about the phone and how to um, control some emotional parameters around it. But now we need to really focus on, all right, let's dial in the sleep. Let's really prioritize that and then try to elevate ourselves from there. So it's huge. It's changed my life for sure. A million percent. Have you heard the the John, you know, John Wooden, the UCLA basketball coach? Have you heard about him in tennis shoes? Have you heard that story? Oh, I love that story. But please share it if you have it. Yes. Oh, well, if your audience has heard it a million times, then, then I've never shared it on this podcast. No, not oh, okay. once. Well, so I think it was Kareem Abdul Jabbar talked about it. He's a famous center. And uh, he went to UCLA for college to play basketball. And he was a huge star coming in, big prospect, all this kind of stuff. And um, John Wooden was the famous UCLA basketball coach for decades, led them all these championships and stuff. But the very first day of practice, he would welcome in 
the new players, no matter how good or how talented you are coming in. And the very first exercise they did was him sitting everybody down in a circle and teaching them how to tie their shoes correctly. And you're like, that is, this is bizarre. Like, why is he teaching them how to tie their shoes correctly? But ultimately, he was tying it back to a lot of what we're talking about here, which is so many people want to worry about all the expert moves and worry about the complex things and the high difficulty things, when in reality, like, none of that matters if you don't get the foundation right. And sleep and eating well and having good connection to your community and all that kind of stuff um, is the tying your shoes of life. And a lot of people just skip it. And uh, to me, I always love that story because it's just like, okay, like before I get fancy, like I just make sure I get the fundamentals right. And then, then I can start to get fancy after that. Otherwise you just build a house on a, on a rickety foundation and it's always going to fall down if you don't get the fundamentals nailed in first. Mm, I love that story. It's like the perfect thing. Superstars coming into the locker room thinking they're about to do all this stuff with the best coach in the world. And he's like, we will work on putting your socks on and tying your shoes today. <laughs> uh, like what do you mean you know, we went on this we went on this ski trip and uh my son uh went on a lesson and uh he's like he came back he's like he's like dad i've been putting my boots on wrong i was like you what <laughs> like i never even talked to him about it but the instructor was like yeah you have to like put your straps on correctly on the boots and uh it's like oh this is totally worth the money but it's just mm. like for that fundamental thing where i was like oh, i'm a terrible dad <laughs> a terrible father that's funny uh all right number 10 here we go failure always have a silver lining for every yeah, sucky thing for bankruptcy to closing to losing money to shame there's an upside one is closure you can move on to your next thing and for those things you didn't like doing in the business good news they're gone failure always has a silver lining yeah I mean, it's the little annoying things of a business or things you didn't like or, you know, a customer you didn't really care for. It's like, well, okay, well, at least I don't have to deal with that anymore. <laughs> it's obviously it isn't worth the the hell you just went through uh, with the company, you know, failing or the venture failing or the team failing. But, you know, if there was an annoying parent, you know, at least, well, okay, the season's over. I don't have to deal with that annoying parent anymore. And I think it's worth as you start to go through the cycles of grief, um, which we all do the stages of grief with anything that fails. Uh, and as you get to that, you know, acknowledgement phase at the end, the acceptance, uh, you can be like, well, I'm going to accept that the, the thing went poorly, but I'm also going to be optimistic and thankful that some of the crap I had to deal with, I don't have to deal with it anymore. So um, I put that as number 10, because I just wanted to leave on a positive note. You know, there's always an opportunity to just get back up, dust yourself off, try again. And uh, yeah, just like everything else in life. Yeah, I mean, the people who succeed aren't, I mean, some, there's like the you know, best in the world. They just got it figured out. But most of us who succeed um, just kept trying. It's not that we were smarter or better than anyone else. We're the same. We're the same. We have, yeah. the, we have the same flaws. We have the same weird tendencies. We have the same overthinking and the FOMO and the comparison and all the stuff that comes with being a person. But we just kept getting back up and we kept trying. And we learned like that little small thing from before. Like when I struck out four times, okay, maybe don't swing at three breaking balls in the dirt, big guy. Okay, next game, only swung at one breaking ball in the dirt. Right. Now I'm a little bit better, right? You know, so it's just like having that that process to reflect upon it and knowing that, you know, if you just keep trying, eventually something's going to work out because then luck starts to play in your favor because whatever's watching over you, universe, God, whoever it is, it's like, oh, this guy's like, he keeps trying. Like, fuck yeah, let's reward him. Yeah. Grit matters. So. 
that's the number one determining factor I've seen in what sets great CEOs away from mediocre ones, what sets great athletes away uh, above great business people, just how gritty are you? Do you, how do you respond to failure and get back in there and just try to do better the next time because you care. And uh, that's the biggest separator. People ask like, what's the number one determinator of CEOs in my world and who succeeds and who doesn't? It's who's the grittiest. The grittiest mm. ones do better every single time. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I got one more thing that I want to talk to you about. And that is, how do you, how do you think about building great teams? Yeah, it's uh, one of the interesting things. If you go to my Twitter, uh, I did a piece earlier this week about some principles that I, I love um, around that. And I ended up, I think, with a dozen principles or so. There are different ones that I think about. And, you know, I think at a meta level, thinking about the art of putting together great teams, it's an art. And I think that's where I encourage people to really become a student of it as you start to create teams because it impacts so much, right? If you have, um, if you have the right team, that's what really matters. I mean, here in San Antonio, Popovich um, mm. has some good lines. He's Coach Popovich. One of, he has some bad lines too, but one of his good lines is like, you know, people ask, how did he end up in the Hall of Fame for coaching? He's like, yeah, like I drafted Tim Duncan and then I didn't die. Like, <laughs> kind of what he talks about. it's such a good line, but it also, he understands like when you're the coach or the chief executive or the chairman of a company, like you're not on the field shooting shooting threes right somebody else is doing that and uh you know that art of producing them is just such a or, or creating great teams is just such a, a great art and one i encourage people really to study and think through deeply if you're going to try to do it because the impact of it is just enormous if you build a great team and you see it over and over again in sports and business and all this kind of stuff and uh it's worth it's worth your time to dig into and uh read my tweet thread about it if you're interested in how i think about it in depth yeah, I'll, uh, I'm going to link that below. That was one I debated on talking about over this one. But since you did that one so recently, I figured people can go find that one easily when this when this episode comes out. This one we talked about, you, you posted in December. So now you've posted so much since then, since your Twitter is packed with with really good stuff. But um, I mean, building building great teams, like you don't even have to think about it in a in a business or or sports sense. Like who's the team in your day-to-day -day life? Like in that team definitely doesn't need to be 700 people it can be like three and you can just nurture and build those relationships like that are so beautiful and long-lasting and reciprocal and cooperative and like wow how much value can that add to your life and then you can learn how to do that on a broader scale if you want to enter into um you know that world but i'm sure as you would agree like everything in in life is built on good relationships absolutely Absolutely. Yes. It's all yeah. About, so like, yeah, um, it's all about that. And you even look at some of the people that have been vilified in the press, uh, like Charles Koch, you know, who's been really poorly portrayed. And I, I don't know him, but I do know that when you even you read the books about the Koch family and him in particular, and you read the books that are even like hit pieces, like even those hit pieces are like people loved working for Charles Koch. And it's like, Oh, like there is something, this idea of building great relationships, creating win-wins with people and trying to do best by them, you know, that, that pays off in life enormously. And you look at all the great leaders in history, like they, they won eventually because 
They started by building amazing relationships with the people around them, and then a movement happened, whether that's a corporation or a political movement or a societal movement. It all started with them developing close relationships and building win-wins with people from the beginning. And uh, yeah, it's a cheat code in life if you're able to do it. Absolutely. Then you you have trust and you have culture and like, oh, it's like, man, my, I mean, that's what I'm, I'm getting married in September. And nice. speaking of teams, my best men are the guys that I played baseball with for three or four years in college because like yeah. we're in the trenches together. We're trying to figure out girls and how to make time management and if we should study or if we should go out drinking or if we should play baseball. Like we're doing all making all these decisions together and making a lot of the wrong ones, but also making a lot of the right ones, but doing it together and, you know, growing and maturing in our lives. Now, a lot of my friends are having babies and I'm getting married and it's like, wow, we've come so far. But like, we can talk about these things in different ways. Like my, my buddy's about to have a second kid. And eventually when I have a kid, I'm going to ask him for like advice. Like, how did you do it? What things should I look for? Like, you know, and I can only do that because we've built a relationship over the last 13 years, which started off with, you know, partying now is like a little bit different, but it's a cool, you know, it's a cool transition to think about that. And you can only nurture those relationships if you, if you give them the space and time to actually, you know, uh, be your authentic self and express that and, and, and evolve as you go. So I think it's, yeah, the cheat code. I think that's the perfect way to put it. It's the cheat code for life. Amen. I love that phrase. Yeah, it's perfect. If there was a hack, hacks don't really exist, but if there was one, it'd be relationships for sure. Yeah. Yeah, hacks just definitely. not being stupid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, uh, I know people can go to Twitter to find you. We'll link that in the show notes. But is anything else that you, you want to uh, lead people to or anything else that you want to end this conversation with? Yeah, go to go to my website if you can. Uh, we spent a lot of effort on it. It's girdly.com, my last name. We have a free newsletter that we put out. The reason it's free is because people pay me to advertise on it, but the content's good. Um, I've got 30,000 people or so that get my weekly email, so really there. And then I'm going hard on YouTube this year. I've done like whatever, 20 or so long form videos. And you can go watch my journey of being terrible on YouTube to being like kind of okay now. So if people want to go search for Gridley on YouTube, I am on there and would love it if you could join the 1200 other people that subscribe to me currently. Fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time, Michael. And uh, um, it was it was really great hearing your insights and you explained that all those insights to me. So thank you. Absolutely. Good luck with your marriage and wedding and all that stuff. It's so exciting. So Keep, keep us posted yeah. on that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to that episode with Michael Girdley. What idea stood out to you the most? What idea resonated with you most deeply? And if you enjoyed that episode, please share it with a friend. Because the podcast grows from people like you sharing it with people like you. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple, or even on Good Pods. But the absolute best way to support this podcast is by becoming a supporter via Patreon. So hit the link below, check out all of the tiers, and know that every tier you select directly supports me, this podcast, and my mental health nonprofit called You Are Loved. So thank you in advance. I really appreciate it. But most importantly, most importantly, above all else, please, please take good care of yourselves and others. And I'll see you next time. Lots of love. Cheers.